This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. And this is the 7th Avenue Project. Today we're going to take a risk and violate some broadcasting standards. We're going to get into something you're not supposed to talk to talk about on the radio, and I mean mathematics. In fact, it may be the most forbidding and forbidden topic of all. At least it was before my guest Keith Devlin came along. As NPR's math guy, he's made it okay to talk about arithmetic on radio. You could say he's done for math functions what Dr. Ruth did for sexual dysfunction. Today, Keith and I are going to talk about a number of things mathematical, particularly an event he's going to be part of here in Santa Cruz. It's a performance of math-inspired music and dance. We'll hear some of that music, and we'll also hear from dancer-mathematician Carl Schaefer, also one of the most important math discoveries you've probably never heard of. And some... And support for the 7th Avenue Project is from the Capitola Book Cafe. Capitola Book Cafe is a full-service bookshop and espresso bar specializing in author events. Open late next to the 41st Avenue uh, Playhouse in Capitola. So, as I said, today it's all about math. And there are some people out there who consider math equations unsuitable for mass media. But to them, I have this to say. Those of you who used to listen to my old show when I hosted Talk of the Bay on KUSP may remember that song. It's from a program I did about beauty in math and physics. It featured Keith Devlin talking up one of his favorite equations known as Euler's Equation, and I wondered what it would be like to hear its praises sung literally. So I went to one of my friends who belongs to the Santa Cruz-based choral ensemble Zambra, and together they came up with the musical number that we just heard, an ode to Euler's Equation. I put it on my show. Keith Devlin heard it and fell in love with Zombra's work, and they began a collaboration that they call Harmonious Equations. They translate math into song. Harmonious Equations will be part of a performance called Imaginary Numbers that will take place next month in Santa Cruz. It's produced by math dancer Carl Schaefer, who I'll be talking to a little later in the show. But first, a conversation with Keith Devlin and music from Zombra. You know, you have said, I think, uh, in introducing the show to audiences, that there is this interesting uh, correspondence between math and music in that um, both are represented mm-hmm. in symbolic language on paper. Correct. In Correct. a way that's sort of uh, uh, <laughs> abstract and dry. Oh, yeah. I mean, a page of, 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 of musical notation to anyone who doesn't read it is like a page of mathematical notation to someone who doesn't read that. I'm, I'm one of these people in the world who looks at a page of mathematics and don't see the symbols. I go straight through the symbols to what they represent. Uh, Musicians, and I'm not one of them, can look at a page of music and they don't see those symbols. They hear the music. So as a mathematician, uh, what I do when I read mathematics is, if you like, I hear a mathematical symphony played in my head. I'm not aware of the symbols 
Now, the first, the first equation that made its way into this mathematical music by Zambra was the one you and I discussed on that previous show. It's Euler's equation. Why don't you tell us about that equation? To me and to many other people, Euler's equation is the most beautiful equation of mathematics. It's the, it's the equivalent of the Mona Lisa in mathematics, if you like, because it, it captures incredible complexity and richness and depth in an unbelievably simple representation. It's absolutely beautiful. In mathematics, there are very few constants, famous constants. Pi is the one everyone knows about, the ratio of the circumference of a circle to the diameter. There's E, the basis of natural logarithms. There are the basic constants of 0 and 1 for arithmetic. And then there's another constant, I, the square root of negative 1, uh, which most people find rather baffling, but is actually a very important number that plays a role in understanding electric currents and, and a lot of physics and, and engineering and so forth. So you've got these constants, E, I, pi, zero, and one. So these different constants have different origins, different purposes. They're very, very different. And yet, as Euler discovered, E to the power I, pi, is negative one. Or another way of saying it, E to the power I, pi, plus one, is zero. In that formulation, you've got the five fundamental constants of mathematics, all of which are very different connected in the most simple equation you can imagine. That is just beautiful. I mean, it's absolute perfection. Uh, As I speak it again, I've known about this equation for 30 years. Every time I talk about it, I get ripples up the back of my neck. It's (laughs) unbelievably powerful. Um, You said that uh, when you read mathematical notation, in a sense, you experience it. When you read Euler's equation, does it have a sound? Does it have an aesthetic? Does it have a, a, a feel? Uh, that Yes, it does. It's, it's very harmonious uh, and it's circular. It's about circular. I, I understand what's behind the equation. I didn't when I first encountered it as a teenager. I was just baffled by it. But now I know it's really all about going round and round in circles. And that was part of the interpretation that Zambra brought to this, the fact that there's a, there's a, there's a circular nature of it. The circle is the most beautiful and perfect shape and Euler's equation actually encapsulates in a formulaic form the perfection of the circle. Okay, now let's hear what Zambra did with it. And uh, it'd be a good idea to explain that, lest people think that what Zambra is doing here is literally generating music that um, that is that is sort of a function of this equation, so that maybe the time intervals are always a literal interpretation mm-hmm. of the equation. No, they're coming up with representations of mathematical concepts in in musical terms. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like their painters and their their palettes and their, their their boards are music, and and they basically came to it and said, well, here's some mathematics, and 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 Keith Devlin has explained to us what the mathematics is and why it's important, why it's beautiful, why has he chosen this? So we went through all of this process of me saying, why are we doing it? Da, 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 da. So I explained everything about it. And then they set out interpreting it. And they looked for different kinds of interpreters. Sometimes they did try to capture the, the mathematics in, in, in musical issues. And so there were various interpretations like that. But more generally, really what they were doing was saying, as musicians, as singers, what in our repertoire can we do 
that captures elements of what Keith's telling us about the equations. And that was the fun about it, because they came up with different interpretations. And in fact, they were consciously trying to look for different types of interpretations for the different equations. So it didn't just become formulaic. Uh, you, you might hear a, a couple of times you think, oh, I know what they're doing. Then the next one, oh, mm -hmm. no, they've come at this from a very different mm -hmm. angle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's go on to the next one, the Pythagorean theorem. Everybody knows this one. The moment I decided we'd do the show, the second equation after the Euler, which Sam had already interpreted and, and, and recorded, it was a no-brainer. We had to do Pythagoras' theorem uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. One is that it's, it's almost the only equation that everybody on the face of the planet knows. If you ask people to, to name an equation, that's the one that they know. Uh, it's you know, the square on the hypotenuse is the sum of the squares on the other two sides in any right-angled triangle. It's one of the oldest equations of mathematics. It goes back uh, well before Pythagoras, I mean, who was one that just sort of captured it and, and, and arguably maybe came up with one of the first proofs. But it's an ancient theorem. It's got all kinds of ancient practical applications. And it's a beautiful theorem because it's... I mean, the, the, the surprising thing is that no matter how large the right-angle triangle is, and it could be a minuscule one you write on the back of a little fingernail or a huge one that you lay out on a football field or an even bigger area, you always have that, 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 that identity. The hypotenuse squared is always the sum of the squares on the other two sides. That's really a remarkable theorem, uh, holding for everything. It's, it says there's something about the universe that's the same wherever you go, draw any right-angle triangle anywhere in the world on a flat surface, you'll always have this equation. Uh, today, it's not that big a deal. I mean, we have, we have equations that are much more important. But from a conceptual point of view, it's hugely important, not least because this was one of the first equations our ancestors ever discovered. We have thousands of equations now, but this is one of the granddaddy equations. It's still important for politicians with all the triangulating they do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave a no comment on that one. <laughs> um, again, let's hear Zamra's interpretation, this, this time of the Pythagorean theorem. Gods and demons, gods and demons, gods and demons. In any right angle, triangle, the square, on the high button, demons. Equals the sum of the squares on the other two sides. In any right angle triangle, the square on the hypotenuse. Equals the sum of the squares on the other two sides. In any right angle triangle, the square on the And by the way, that reference to gods and demons comes from something Pythagoras once said. Number is the ruler of forms and ideas and the cause of gods and demons. 
An example there of math music performed by Zambra and directed by mathematician Keith Devlin. He's one of my guests today on the 7th Avenue Project here on KUSP. And we'll be hearing more about their upcoming Santa Cruz performance later in this show. I'm Robert Polly. Uh, now we're going to go to the, the formula uh, for the area of the circle, another one that I think most people will remember from their very earliest geometry. Right. This is, again, I, I wanted some of the equations to be things that people would easily identify with. And so having, having and I, I knew that for most people, the, the Euler identity would be new and very startling. So we went straight from that in the show to the Pythagorean theorem, which was something everyone could immediately relate to. And then we followed that on with the, with, with the formula for the area of a circle. If you have a circle, any circle, you can compute its area by multiplying the radius squared times pi. Pi is this weird number that goes on forever, 3.14. 1.59, etc. Et How far et can you take it? How many places? That's it. I, I only ever learned it to 3.14159, I'm afraid. <laughs> there are people who've learned it to hundreds, if not thousands of places. Uh, that always seemed to me a particularly fruitless pastime. Uh, you just round it off for um, most practical purposes. For most practical purposes, uh, when I was at school, we were taught it was 22 over 7, ah. uh, 3 and 1 seventh, which is ah. pretty close. Yeah. Uh, you only need it to 10 places to be able to detect the size of a nickel on the surface of the moon. Wow. That's only 10 places. So there's nothing practical in the world that needs more than 10 decimal places for pi. And I've got six of them, and that, that does me fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> Now, pi, you said, is, is the most mysterious number in mathematics. Well, it is the most mysterious when you realize that it keeps cropping up all over the places. Pi is just ubiquitous. It's defined traditionally in terms of, uh, of, of geometry, but it comes up all over the place. It's, it's in, in very, very surprising places. That, that simple formula hides an incredible complexity. It sweeps under the carpet a very difficult philosophical question or difficult mathematical question of what is area in the first place. Area is based on the idea of squares and rectangles. By taking any figure with what we call a rectilinear figure, any figure whose edges are straight, you can split it up into small squares, triangles, and calculate its area by adding together of all the components, squares and triangles and rectangles, add them together, it gives you the area of the whole thing. So the notion of area for any figure in the plane whose edges are straight is done by a simple, straightforward calculation. And what it means is, how many little squares can you get in it? Take something with a smooth edge, and the simplest example is a circle. 
what exactly does it mean? Because you can't fit it. You can't fill it with squares. You can approximately fill it, but you can't fill it with squares. You'd need to have infinitely many, infinitely small squares. So there was this classical problem called squaring the circle. Given a circle, can you find a square which has exactly the same area? And that problem went unsolved for many, many years. It was eventually, I think it was in the, was it the 19th century, was shown to be unsolvable. You simply cannot do it using elementary techniques like rule of encompasses. Uh, we know that that's in, 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 in the sense of basic mathematics, it's impossible to square the circle. But the problem arose essentially through trying to define what area means. Reduce the area of a circle, which is problematic philosophically, uh, to the area of an equivalent square. We can't do it that way, but what came out of a lot of the early work was another way of doing it. And it leads to this formula pi, this formula involving pi, area equals pi r squared. And it, that manages to sort of push away the philosophical difficulties under the carpet because of the nature of pi. Pi has this infinite non-recurring decimal expansion. Pi is inherently infinite in its structure. So the reason it sort of does the trick is because it wraps up infinity in its own decimal expansion. And that's why it gives you the actual area. But, but in truth, when we apply that formula, we're rounding off. Well, we have to in round off because, terms, because we, the we real answer is infinite. That's right. We have to round it off because that once you put the pi in there, it, certainly if the diameter is something like one, two, or three, then you can never complete the calculation. You have to round it off at some point or other. So when I say a, a, a circle has, let's say, an area of five square inches, that's not the real answer. Well, it could be if you picked one that actually does. But if you constructed it by starting with the diameter... <laughs> Um, then, then it would be approximate. Oh, yeah. Okay. So certainly one that you construct yourself, sort of with a compass, sort mm -hmm. of compasses or something. Then, uh, then when you give the area, it's definitely an approximation. You can know one of the two: the diameter and the area. Yeah. You can have one of them. You can't have both. Wow. That's quite common in mathematics. Is it? Yeah. And and typically it's presented in one direction. With circles, typically you know the diameter. What you cannot calculate exactly are the yes. area or the or the circumference. Yes. Let's move on to Einstein's equation. Everybody, again, knows this one. It's printed on the front of many a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and again, it's a really simple equation that says a lot. Yeah, and, and this is one, that, again, it was a no-brainer. I thought everyone would, if, if it wasn't there, people would say, why isn't Einstein's equation there? Now, you could not, so this is e, e, energy equals the mass times the speed of light squared, E equals mc squared, an icon of the, of the 20th century for sure. And... Um, you know, you could say, and I, I address this in, in, the, in the narration I give in the show, that this is really an equation of physics. And it is, it's the most famous equation of physics, arguably. But all of relativity theory, including the famous E equals mc squared, was obtained by, by essentially by doing mathematics. It was all a mathematical generation. So, yes, it's an equation of physics, but it was a product of mathematical thinking. Admittedly, thinking conditioned about understanding the universe we live in. And what mathematics led Einstein to in the case of E equals mc squared is this realization that energy can be turned into mass or mass turned into energy. A little mass turned into a lot of energy, yeah, yeah, right? Because yeah. it's m times the speed of light squared. Yeah, mass yeah, times the speed uh, of light that, squared is um, the amount of energy. And that gave Zambra a lot of fun coming up with something that ended. In fact, uh, in the show, they, had, they, they do it the other way around. They say mc squared equals energy because they wanted to end with this burst of energy. And so they, they read it. The nice thing about equations is you can read them back to front. And that was an occasion where, for the musical, for, for the, for musical reasons, they did it from right to left. And it worked beautifully, and they had, we all had a lot of fun with that one. Right, mc squared equals e. It's just yeah. as good. Yeah. And here are the, the women of Zambra explaining it. 
For the word mass, we composed a melody suggestive of a medieval chant, which to us conveys a deep, heavy, weighty sound. Since Gregorian chants were sung in Latin, we sing various words in Latin that have English translations such as mass, heavy, dense, great, and the like. To represent C, the speed of light squared, we chime on a resonating C note. Then, of course, we finish with a burst of energy. Okay, so um, our next equation. Uh, this one is by uh, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, mm-hmm. co-inventor of calculus along yes. with Isaac Newton. Yep. Also uh, well known as a philosopher. Mm-hmm. What, yep. did, what did he give us in the way of mathematics here? Oh, this 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 is an amazing thing. This is a uh, this is a, an infinite series. Uh, for calculating pi, or in principle calculating pi. It's not a very effective one for doing the calculation of pi, but it's a remarkable series because it shows that pi has this wonderful internal structure in terms of adding and subtracting infinitely many things together. What it actually says is that pi divided by 4 equals 1 divided by 1 minus 1 divided by 3 plus 1 divided by 5 minus 1 divided by 7 plus 1 divided by 9, minus 1 divided by 11. So you keep on going plus, minus, plus, minus, plus, minus, with the denominators running through all of the odd numbers. One-third, one-fifth, yeah. one-seventh, you know, and so on and so forth, all through infinity. Now, how do you prove something like that works when it's infinite? <laughs> uh, this is deep mathematics, and uh, fortunately, neither in the Zamba show nor in my discussion with you uh, do we really feel obliged to go into the details, because uh, a lot of mathematics, I often say that, you know, it's, it's said that two things in the world you don't want to see being made, and one is laws and the other one is sausages. And for most people, the same is true of mathematics. I thought you were going to say, you don't want to know how pi is made. <laughs> well, the nice thing about pi is you like to smell how it's been made. But, 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 but driving but you come from fictitious. England, of course, and some of the pies there, you don't want to know how no, they're no, made. No, 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 absolutely not. No, I, I grew up with Spotted Dick, and we really don't want to go there. But um, now we... Uh, uh, That's a dessert, by the way, folks. Going, going back into, going back into, into the mathematical pi, uh, it's a complicated beast. It comes up in all kinds of places uh, and the very fact that it has this representation as an infinite sum with such a recognisable pattern the odd numbers you know, the, 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 the fascinating question is why when you do this when you know, take the odd numbers, put them at the bottom of, 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 of you know, make them reciprocals alternate between plus and minus let that run on to infinity why on earth should you get anything reasonable let alone pi by four I mean that is just mind boggling uh, and it tells you that there's stuff going on uh, beneath the surface that, that, that mortals are usually not aware of 3.1 over 4 What does it equal? 3.1 over 4 What does it equal? 3.1 
equals one over one minus one over three plus one over five minus one over seven plus one over nine minus one over eleven plus one over thirteen minus one over fifteen plus To interpret these things musically is really can be quite challenging, and, and in this case particularly so, because the right-hand side of that equation, because it's got this wonderful repeating pattern and it's regular and it's got a rhythm to it, mathematically it's got a rhythm to it, minus one, minus one, minus one, so forth. They had little trouble coming up with lots of ideas to interpret that. But then you had to capture the left-hand side, and you can't just sing pi by four... That's it. It's over in a fraction. So they had to come up with a way of interpreting the left-hand side. And what they do is they have someone reciting the decimal expansion of pi as far as they, as, as they need to for the, for, the, for the length of the song. Uh, and they have that running through to represent the left-hand side. And then they have another group of the singers representing the right-hand side. So it's a very rich interpretation. Uh, it sounds good. It's got a nice rhythm. And it's incredibly deep and mathematically it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, on to uh, our very last one. Newton's laws of motion. These are, again, um, mathematical uh, equations that people may be very familiar with. Uh, should have all been taught very earlier in their lives. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and, and you know, only one of them is an equation. In fact, one of the discussions we had was, do You're we right. just talk about forces, mass, times, acceleration, or do we do all of the three? Uh, and after some initial discussion, uh, it was decided we'd do all of the three because they're really one on the whole, and that gives them a rich palette to pull upon when they put together the music. And then it was kind of interesting because if, if you look at what they actually sing, it's not the laws of motion expressed in the way you'll find it in any textbook. We played with the wording so that it was possible to, to sing it the right way. It's mathematically correct, it's physically correct, but we expressed the laws of motion, one of them in particular, in a way that, was, that, that really lent itself to a choral interpretation. So this is, uh, this is physics and mathematics rewritten through the eyes of, of, of music, <laughs> and yet still is correct. Remain in motion, remain, remain. so force checks on it. 
music there by Zombra and Keith Devlin and they'll be part of a performance coming up on May 15th, 16th and 17th that's Friday, Saturday and Sunday night uh, of May at the 418 Project at 418 Front Street in Santa Cruz. I'll be giving out more details just a little later in this show. That performance was called Imaginary Numbers and it's presented by choreographer dancer Carl Schaefer and company. Carl is himself a mathematician and his dances are based on math. I spoke with him about the show. Okay, let me let me throw a stereotype at you. Mathematicians, totally in their heads, dealing with abstractions. Dancers, totally physical in their bodies. How can you be both a mathematician and a dancer? <laughs> well, all of us are totally in our heads sometimes, and all of us are totally running around like crazy sometimes. We're human beings. We think we move, and uh, we always put the two together. We're thinking as we walk down the street or... Um, vice versa. We may, may be moving when we're reading a book and we think we're just using our minds, but we can be actually physically active. And we, in in many of our shows about math and dance, we try to make those linkages more apparent. You don't just dabble in math. You have a PhD in math and you teach math at De Anza College. So you're, yes. you're a real mathematician. Yeah, I, I do serious math. I do serious dance. I don't dabble a friend of mine once told me, I don't have interests, I have obsessions, and so they're two linked <laughs> obsessions. When did you put math and dance together? Well, Eric Stern and I started doing this together in the late 1980s, about 1989. Um, we created a, a show called Two Guys Dancing About Math, and <laughs> we've performed that 500 times around the country, North America, and um, that was the first attempt. The name of the show was actually... Dr. Schaefer and Mr. Stern, Two Guys Dance About Math, and that's been the name of the dance company, Dr. Schaefer and Mr. Stern Dance Ensemble. So in that show, Dr. Schaefer is more analytical and Mr. Stern is more intuitive. And the two characters are at odds all the time during the show and arguing about whether there really is um, math in dance or there could be dance in math. And uh-huh. so we, we kind of playfully uh, argue with it about it as we do the dances that we do in that show. Is Dr. Schaefer a very exacting dancer as well, as you might expect from, <laughs> from an arithmetic kind of guy? Uh, you know, <laughs> s- some of my dancer friends tell me I count too much, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I think being exacting is important, emotive and uh, expressive and everything else. So, so you just described one performance in which math is integrated in part just through an argument. I mean, you guys are actually talking to each other. Kind of a running argument. Running argument. Say. How yeah. else do you integrate math? I mean, is it simply a way of structuring the dance or is there something else going on? Um, there are many, many different ways in which um, mathematical ideas come into play in dance. You could think about counts and you could think about how things combine, ways of, of combining. Um, you can think about shaping, um, about uh, other aspects of geometry, linkages between dancers. You could think about floor pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it's almost endless, really. If you start to go in that direction, you'll find there's a, there, there are all kinds of ways to do it. Give us some examples of mathematical concepts that you have 
integrated into some of your performances? Well, let me talk about the ones in this show. Um, there are the uh, harmonious equations with Keith and Zambra, Keith Devlin and Zambra, uh, where we take um, uh, seven or eight equations and, for our part, try to um, explore them Dancically, as well yeah, as well as it's they're explored mathematically. Dancically, I've never heard that term before. <laughs> I don't think it's a word. Uh, I think the word is terpsichorically. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so we we explore a lot of we we help explore those equations along with Zombra and Keith, and uh, there's another uh, dance called Imaginary Numbers, which is the title of the show, which is about this kind of spiraling. Uh, movement uh, form or spiraling pattern that dancers love to do and that I love to watch. And it's a, a way of starting to explain how that works. So we, we kind of take that apart and I, I start to play with the idea of imaginary numbers versus real numbers, but also what's imaginary and what's real, what's virtual and what's real life. Um, mm. And uh, I explore that through the way in which video is all around us now, of course, this is not video, is it? Mm. But um, recorded life, essentially, is is ubiquitous. And so y these questions arise as to whether what you're hearing is live or recorded. Well, I guess this is live now, but it, it will be recorded mm. <laughs> later. And mm -hmm. we play with that, that imagination or imaginary versus real while we're exploring these uh, spiraling movements, mm -hmm. that's one of the one of the things I've been exploring recently. So, so you and your company will be dancing while Zombra sings. Yes. Uh, in your own expression of the equation that uh, Zombra is uh, singing about, and that Keith Devlin will be explaining, <laughs> um, um, you'll be also doing some pieces without that accompaniment. Yes. Right. So. About half the show is harmonious equations directed by Keith and with Zambra creating and singing the music and us dancing the dances. And the other half of the show are uh, about five dances, um, mostly by myself, but also by one of the dancers, Deanna Ross mm. from Monterey. I noticed that one of the uh, pieces you'll be performing in this upcoming show is uh, called The Atom Bomb Game. Yes. <laughs> A grimly humorous danced and spoken duet about nuclear war. Uh how do you extract humor from that subject? <laughs> <laughs> it's a duet with Deanna Ross, who's a great dancer and, and who's had a lot of input into this piece. And and I wrote this script that goes with it. Um, it it's dance to music, but we're, we're having this discussion or really argument as we go about this game that the character who I play has invented called the Atom Bomb Game, in which we uh, try to collect more atom bombs, essentially, then the other person, whoever gets the biggest number, wins. Hmm. And um, so it becomes a metaphor for the arms race. Where's the math come into this one? The math in this is what's sometimes called the prisoner's dilemma, which is, um, in, in a nutshell, that's what you could say is that if you cooperate with other people, you'll do well. But if you um, don't cooperate, you might do really great. You might get really rich, but things might not work out for mm. the other person. This is game theory. Game theory, yes. Which is a branch of mathematics that can be applied to contests and games and... All kinds of things. Yes. Right. Evolution. Anything. But uh, <laughs> we play with it. It becomes one of the metaphors with which we explore the ways in which people either pay attention to or ignore um, 
uh, essentially nuclear Armageddon. Mm. Mm. How, how, so there's there's an undercurrent of something very serious that we're we're trying to deal with in this piece. Mm. Well, Carl, thank you. Thank you. And that performance of math-inspired music and dance featuring Carl Schaefer himself, his fellow dancers, the Zombra Vocal Ensemble, and NPR math guy Keith Devlin will take place on May 15th, 16th, and 17th. Three performances, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday evenings at the uh, 418 Project at 418 Front Street in Santa Cruz. More information can be had at movespeakspin.org. Excuse me. <clears throat> movespeakspin.org and at 831 831- Three three five one eight six one. Zombra also has its own website at zombra.org. And this is the Seventh Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Finally today, more with Keith Devlin. This time describing one of the most important math discoveries ever, and probably one you've never heard of. In fact, I'll bet you ten to one you haven't. That discovery is the subject of Keith Devlin's new book, The Unfinished Game: Pascal Fermat and the 17th Century Letter That Made the World Modern. It recounts a correspondence between Blaise Pascal and Pierre de Fermat, two great French mathematicians that ended up changing the way we think, according to Keith Devlin. Here he is. This is one of the the, the most amazing revolutions in human cognition of all time, and it's a story that almost no one knows, and that, truth be told, I didn't know until I did the research for this book. They were trying to work out a particular problem. What was the problem? The problem was known as the problem of the unfinished game, sometimes called the problem of the points, and it's a very simple idea. It's a, a puzzle that gamblers had been arguing about for hundreds of years before it came to, to Pascal and Fermat's attention, and it says, you imagine two people are gambling, and let's imagine they're, they're rolling a pair of dice or mm. tossing a coin mm-hmm. Um and they've decided they'll have the best out of five. They're going to play five games, and the winner of the best out of five is going to win. And so they start putting money in the pot, and they roll once, and then one person wins, and they roll again. And, and let's imagine three rounds have gone by, and one player has won two games, the other one's won one game. And at that point, they have to abandon the game for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's money in the pot, and so they need to divide the pot in a way that reflects the state of play. Okay, let me suggest a solution. One guy has won two rounds, the other guys won one round. Now the vice squad comes along, breaks up the game. They've got to divide the stakes. Why not two to one? That was what a lot of mathematicians over the two or three hundred years before Pascal and Fermat came along, that was what they said. Uh, why not? Because it's wrong, is the simple <laughs> answer. The, the trouble with the two to one is that that reflects what's happened already. Mm-hmm. Whereas what's really at issue is the unfinished part. It's what's played out. What I'm about to say to someone in the 20th or 21st century will seem like a, well, duh, sort of answer. But it was very novel in the time, and at the time Pascal and Fermat came on the scene. And what they said was, this really hinges on the rounds that would yet to have been played. So what you have to do is perform a sort of a thought experiment of saying, how many ways could that game have been played out? And in how many of those possible ways would the first player have won and how many would the second player have won? And if you look at all the ways it would have, could have played out, you'll find that uh, there are actually four ways it could have played out. Mm-hmm. Um, in three of those ways, the player who's already won two will win. The only chance the last player has, the second player, having only won one game, must win the last two, mm-hmm. whereas the other one can win three ways. So there are mm-hmm. three possibilities for the first player to win, one possibility for the second player to win. So the way you should divide it is three to one. So you calculate the odds of uh, one player winning versus the odds of the other player winning, right. and you use that to divide the pot. 
<coughs> right. Use those and, odds. It's, and it's looking at the odds into the future. Mm-hmm. And that was what was novel. At the time Pascal and Fermat started to look at this, mathematicians had worked out, they'd figured out how to calculate the odds in, in dice and cards and things. People knew how to calculate odds. That wasn't the issue. But when they were doing that, what they were looking at was games that had been played, if you like. They were saying, we roll them and we count them and we look at the possibilities. What was novel about this solution? And the solution, by the way, was due to Fermat. Mm -hmm. It's really the first time in history that anyone has has even thought you could, let alone been successful, at applying mathematics to the future. You work out all the possible outcomes, count them up, and figure out how many favour one player or how many favour the other player. And it's a very simple idea today. We it's incredibly it. simple. Uh, you can teach this, and it is, it is regularly taught as a sort of a, a, a you know, in, in evening classes and after-school classes to kids in the middle school. This is not deep stuff in terms of the calculations. What caused the problem was this was being applied to the future. Uh, you've got to really, and, and it, when, this is really what's interesting when you read Pascal's letter. Pascal, one of the greatest mathematicians of all times, cannot accept the argument. In, in his letter, he keeps trying to find faults, and he just doesn't. On one level, he can see the logic, but he just can't buy it. The idea that you can count futures just baffles him. That was a big breakthrough. Until then, people thought. Okay, sada, sada, the future is in the hands of the gods on Mount Olympus or your personal god or wherever it is, it's purely a matter of chance. There's no way you can mitigate risk. You've just got to accept what tomorrow will bring. Or, or pray a lot. <clears throat> or pray a lot and, and hope that that changes the, 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 so, the odds. So was the, was the problem in part in accepting this, um, letting go of uh, a theological view that has uh, God or some deity in I charge of everything? I think that was... I mean, we have to remember that Pascal, in various stages of his life, was very, he became ultra-religious. Mm. In fact, in, in periods he was very agnostic, if not atheistic, and then went through strong religious periods. He became very religious at certain... Some points he became religious to such an extent that he, he gave up mathematics as being the work of the devil, mm-hmm. which I find hard to believe mm. these days but mm. there you go it could well be that at the back of his mind what kept him from grasping this was a feeling that that's god's domain i'm a human i'm a mortal i shouldn't even be thinking along those lines you're reminding me that this resistance stuck around a long time because we have in the 20th century einstein mm-hmm. saying god doesn't play dice with the universe <laughs> apropos of quantum mechanics and again i mean pascal and Fermat are saying if there's a God, he sure as hell, play, or sure as heaven, <laughs> plays dice with the universe. Yeah, yeah. the idea, first of all, of thinking that, that, that humans can see into the future with mathematics, that was already, uh, I mean, that was a block, and we had to get over that block. And then, as you, as you correctly point out, learning that the universe itself is probably built in a probabilistic way, uh, and that God does play dice with the universe, that was a huge step. And Einstein himself never did overcome that one. That's a step we had to accept. We had to come to accept the fact that, yes, this solid-looking reality that we have before us and that we, the, we, that we live in and that we perceive and we experience and we're built out of, that's an illusion in a sense because it's all built on these, these random fluctuations. On the, at least we think that's our mm. cur- current, current theory. So mm. we've, uh, we, there are a number of times in history when we've had to just change our whole world view and come to accept something new. But uh, in my experience, the one that took place in 1654 is one of the fastest there's ever been. Mm. That was not least because people could make a lot of money very quickly out of it. There, were, is, there was business, there was money to be made out of predicting the future. Now, once that breakthrough had been made, the world changed within 20 or 30 years. Within three years of this letter being written, 
a book was written on probability theory that is essentially like any modern book on probability theory. You have the insurance business coming along. You have annuities being sold. You have people working out life expectancy tables. You have modern statistics, probabilities, probabilistic inference. Pretty well everything we take for granted in the modern world in terms of risk management followed within 20, 30 or 40 years of this letter because once people accepted that you could apply mathematics and counting arguments to the future... Everyone was on the bandwagon and, you know, so you've got insurance companies and risk management and the whole thing, mortgages. I mean, it just all came tumbling down after that one, that one discovery. All based on playing the odds. All based on playing the odds. And, uh, you know, yet again we find that uh, one of the most significant advances for civilization came out of playing games. Are you a gambling man? Uh, no, I'm not a gambling man, and very few mathematicians are, quite oh, frankly. Oh, why not? You guys we know can all about the, the odds, odds. And we know that the odds are stacked against us. The, uh, the people who know the odds best of all are the people who own the casinos in Las Vegas. They don't play the odds. They use the odds to make money, and they make a lot of money as a result. Uh, it's important to remember that casino owners don't gamble because they know that the mathematics cannot be beaten. The people that gamble are the people who go in and pay the money for, for the mm. slots and so mm. forth. Yeah, but the exceptions would be a game where, where you actually can uh, manage your betting and, uh, and, and well, blackjack, things like blackjack that. Blackjack is the only one that you can mathematically manage your, your betting. And, of course, the, the casino owners know that, having been fleeced back in the 60s and 70s, and anyone who saw the movie 21 would have seen that story based on, on, on a real case. Um, the casino owners know that, and they can detect uh, a player who's played. In fact, what happens is the moment you start to win, they know that the only way you can be winning is by using the mathematics, and you're asked to leave the casino. <laughs> Take up your winnings, don't ever come in here again, and you won't be able to come in there again because they've captured your picture and they have an image of you, and the moment you walk through the door, you'll be asked to leave. I got it. They're not going to gamble, uh, and they're certainly not going to play with mathematicians who are actually not gambling because they're using the mathematics. They insist that they're the only ones that can use the mathematics. It's a very uneven battle. Well, well, whether you're a gambling guy or not, I'm going to ask you to take part in a, um, a no-wager game of dice here. Okay. So let's say I'm going to roll a die here. What are my odds of, say, rolling a six? Okay, so there are six faces. Assuming it's an honest die, there's a one in six chance of getting a six. Oh. Unbelievable. I got yeah. it. I got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's say I throw two dice. Now, what are my odds of getting two sixes. Okay, so here's one of the basic rules of probability theory. You multiply the probabilities of the two individual events. So there's a one-sixth chance of getting a six with one die. There's a one-sixth chance of getting a, a, a six with the other one. So the probability of getting a double six is one over six times one over six, which is one over 36. Okay, so we just multiply the probability of one event times the probability yep. of, of the other event, and we get the and probability of both And you can do that when, whenever the two events are what we call as independent, if one doesn't mm -hmm. affect the outcome of the other. Mm -hmm. And with two dice... They're both independent, uh, and so we can multiply the probabilities. Okay, so let's give it a try. <laughs> I rolled two sixes. Well, <laughs> I mean, the fact is, unlikely events happen all of the time. Uh, in fact, I, there's an interesting story. One of my math guy pieces with Scott Simon a few years ago, uh, we were going to do a thing called probabilities called the birthday paradox, which is how likely it is that two people chosen at random share the same birthday. And as we were warming up before the mics went live, Scott said to me, by the way, Keith, when is your birthday? And I said, March the 16th. And Scott erupts in laughter at the other end because he had the same birthday. Unbelievable. So... Uh, you know, these, these things happen. In fact, tell us about the, the birthday, did you say paradox? The birthday paradox. It's actually not a paradox. It's just something that we find very surprising. It's yeah. one of the examples I use all the time to illustrate that, that you've got to be very careful playing with odds because in, unlikely things can often happen. 
And the, the, the question is this. How many people do you need to put together in a room for the chances to be better than 50% that two of them share the same birthday? Better than even odds. Whatever their birthday is, that they'll share it's it with someone birthday. else. Right. Yeah. Now, um, now, most people think, well, there's 365 days in a year. Uh, they've got to share it. Well, maybe it's something like about 180, 190, somewhere about a half. That's the kind of intuitions that we have. Even mathematicians have those genuine intuitions. However, the, if you do the mathematical calculation, you find that you need only 23 people in the room to have a better than 50% chance that two of them share the same birthday. Uh, it's, it's called a paradox because it, 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 we find it hard to grasp, but the mathematics is incontrovertible. Mm. Uh, and in fact, if you, if you perform... By the way, if you have 25 or 26 people in the room, the odds get very, very good. Mm. And with 30 people in the room, it's almost unheard of not to get two shared birthdays. So if a teacher has a class of 30 students... Just run the experiment. The chances are almost guaranteed that two of them will share the same birthday. <laughs> well, let's get back to our game of craps here. I'm going to roll the dice again. Now, having had the extraordinary luck of, of getting two sixes when I rolled two dice, there's no way I'm going to get another six, right? Well, that's what a lot of people think, and that's, that's often called the gambler's fallacy. The, the, the chances of getting a six the next time is exactly the same as it was the other times, one out of six. The fact that you've already got a double six is irrelevant to the next one. It's a company that, as we say, the, the dice have no memory. Each roll of the die is a brand new event. The past doesn't affect it at all. So even if you'd rolled, you know, four or five sixes in a row, assuming the die was an honest one, the chance of rolling another six is actually one in six. Now, the reality is, if you'd rolled five sixes in a row, I would begin to suspect, and so would the casino owner, that you were playing with a loaded <laughs> die. Um, because six, five or six sixes in a row is very unusual. Okay, listeners, place your bets because I'll be taking my chances with mathematician Keith Devlin right after this. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. Now, I want to use these dice again to demonstrate something that has always seemed to me mysterious about probability or uh, something that's always seemed a little bit kooky about statistics and probability. I'm going to roll this die, and I'm not going to let you see the result. Okay, uh, what are the odds that I rolled a six? This is interesting because I would have to say the odds are one in six. You, of course, know, you're, you're, you can see the answer, so you know what. And in fact, I'd say the odds are zero yeah. that I rolled a six this, because I didn't. This is a point that confuses a lot of people. Probability theories, when you really analyze what they are, they're a measure of our own knowledge of the world, our ignorance. When I calculate the probabilities, I can get a different answer from when you prob calculate the probabilities. You can see the, the die, and you know that it's a three or whatever, it's not a six. So to you, that's a certain event. I can't see it, even though it's happened. So the best I can say is the chances of that being a six is one in six. Because probabilities don't measure what is in the world. Probabilities measure what we know about the world. Now, our own ignorance, in some cases, is because things haven't happened yet. And if something hasn't happened, then you and I are in the same position. We calculate the same probabilities. However, if the ignorance is because one of us can't see it, we're going to get different answers. There's no paradox here. It's just that the probabilities were never, ever really attached to the dice in the world. The probabilities really were attached to our knowledge of the world. What kind of math is this that, that depends on our ignorance or knowledge? <laughs> this brings us back to the Pascal Fermat correspondence that you can attach probabilities to things in the future. And in fact, when you read the letter that Pascal wrote to Fermat and you, and you look at the trouble he had trying to understand Fermat's solution, the problem really was to this issue of, 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 of what are we attaching these numbers to? 
and the idea of attaching them to possible futures, well, and, and Pascal keeps explicitly saying, you know, essentially, but had the game been played out, it would have only been played out in one way. So there are no different possible futures. You, you fair Matty would say, are trying to calculate all of these different ways, that these four different ways in this case, the game might have come out. But in fact, only one of them would have mm, happened. Mm. And that's the one you can apply the mathematics to. Mm. And, and it was counterintuitive. And it, people, people still find it counterintuitive. It's very difficult. And the example you just talked about rolling the die and hiding it, that causes people problems today. I get lots of letters when I go on the radio or write the newspapers I get, and I talk about probability. People write in and they say, that, you know, you've got to be wrong because the odds are this. And they have this belief that the odds are some fixed number. It ain't the case. The odds are the number an individual assigns to their own knowledge of the event. And it can change with time and it can change depending on what you know. In fact, the security of the United States depends upon that. Every day, the president of the United States gets gets given what they call a, 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 a defence briefing or an anti-terrorist briefing. I forget what the word. The threat matrix, okay, which is a measure of the probability that there will be a major terrorist attack on the United States that day. It changes from day to day, not because of anything concrete changes. In fact, most days, nothing changes and there isn't an attack. What changes is intelligence comes in. Now, you remind me with your example of predicting a terrorist attack that there are those who say, and, and I've certainly had my suspicions, that there, there are parts of life where we have no business stating a probability. We just know too little. If you and I were to wager on the possibility of a bomb going off in downtown, name your favorite city, <laughs> to, you know, in the next year... What would we possibly base that on? I mean, conditions can change so radically that maybe we have uh, a military conflict by that time and the odds yeah. are very high. Yeah. You know, I mean, how, how is it that people go around assigning probabilities to everything? I mean, the simple answer there is that those things are very unreliable, but what else can we do? I mean, it's better than nothing. It's is it better than nothing? Because well, it gives you a sense of security and confidence that you may not deserve. And, and you know, one major critic of this is Nassim Taleb, you know, in that yeah, book, The Black yeah, Swan. That's said, right, yeah. He, he wrote yeah. that book well before the financial industry yep, collapsed, yep. and he was saying risk management formula are way too confident. Yeah, the problem there is using those probabilistic results without knowing what they mean. All of these probabilistic ideas in, in, in the financial markets and in counterterrorism, they are giving you odds. Those odds are reliable, providing you know what they're telling you. Um, you know, the, the whole thing about the financial meltdown was that we, there was this thing called value at risk, which was the standard number that was used. And what that was meant to say, and this was very much like an opinion poll, the, the, the classic measure that the, that the people misused that led to the financial meltdown, this thing called value at risk, said that... What's the maximum amount you can, you can lose 95% of the time? And people use this for years, and they stayed in the 95% of the time. But then, unfortunately, as time goes on, eventually you're going to veer into that other 5% of the time. And what they forgot was that there's that 5%, and this is the point that Talib makes, there's that 5% there. The mathematics tells you nothing about what's going to happen there. You are in terra incognito. And we are just now discovering what that terror incognito is. Mm -hmm. one, one of Nassim Taleb's critiques is that uh, people often misapply uh, what's known as normal distribution or the bell curve to yes. events where yeah. that doesn't fit. Now, this is another concept that, that ultimately grew out of this groundbreaking moment between Fermat and, and Pascal. The bell curve was later discovered. Yep. Uh, yeah. and, and, and describe to us what exactly the bell curve means. We know it's this 
curve that's shaped like a bell yeah. with numbers arranged around an average and then declining as you get farther away yeah, from that average. And it tells average. you where most of the, in, in anything where you've got populations producing something or being counted, it tells you where most of the answers are going to congregate. So if, if I were to toss a coin many, many times with, you know, with many, many combinations of heads and tails, we're going to see a bell curve with... Uh, Right at the center, an equal number of heads and tails mm-hmm. thrown, 50-50. Yeah. Yeah. And out on the very edges of the bell curve, we're going to see extraordinary results like 20 heads in a row, 30 heads in a row, 40 tails in a row. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the shape of the bell curve is such that it, it sort of has these long tails with almost nothing mm-hmm. and then suddenly leaps up and, and, and clusters around the middle. And it tells us that looking at the shape, pretty well every one of these things is, is within a very small distance of 50-50. So mm-hmm. uh, everything clusters around the middle. But the world doesn't always work that way. Most things in the world actually do tend to work that way pretty darn well. I mean, we're talking about on, on the aggregate behavior. Right. Uh, and even things that on the face of it are not random uh, have enough randomness in them. I mean, like people's intelligence and so uh. forth. There's enough randomness in it. Uh, and this was really the surprising thing that was discovered when, when Gauss and others sort of uh, came across the bell curve. They looked at various measurements of, I think, heights of, of conscript soldiers and weights. of so. And they were uh. looked at all of these things that, in a sense weren't necessarily random. They were, they were sort of with societies and people and things. And they found out that when you collect data from things in the world, from people and crop growth and things, even though they're not random in a strict sense, there's enough randomness in there that you get this behavior. But the thing to remember is all the bell curve tells you is what most people are doing most of the time. But you've got to remember that the, the bell curve goes on, actually goes out to infinity. It goes on forever. Uh, you get very unusual events out there. Yes, they're unusual, but unusual things do occasionally happen. And if you rely on some mathematics day after day after day, week after week after week, months, years, then sooner or later, one of those unusual events is going to come up. And you'd better remember that that could happen tomorrow. Mm. And if we'd remembered that, we might not be in the financial trouble we're in today. Hmm. Well, Keith, look forward to talking to you again soon, provided lightning doesn't strike you. <laughs> Keith Devlin is a mathematician at Stanford University and author most recently of The Unfinished Game, Pascal Fermat and the 17th Century Letter That Made the World Modern. And a reminder that Keith Devlin will be part of Imaginary Numbers, an evening of math-inspired music and dance. Coming up in Santa Cruz, Keith will be doing the explaining. Vocal group Zombro will do the singing and Carl Schaefer and fellow Terpsichoreans will do the dancing. There are going to be three performances of that, May 15th, 16th, and 17th, at the 418 Project at 418 Front Street in Santa Cruz. More information at movespeakspin.org and at 831-335-1861.